Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Amanda. She has Hashimoto's and does not feel well. She's tired, often has brain fog, and feels like she's just inflamed all over. She has been working on her health for a while and has done various diets and many, many different supplements. But even with that, she just doesn't feel like herself. When I met Amanda, I saw all the things that she'd already tried, but noticed that many of those things were actually quite general and there were a few areas that she had not supported yet at all. I knew these were going to be biggies for her and exactly where we needed to go to solve her thyroid mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Amanda's struggles with multiple thyroid-related and autoimmune symptoms. Joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is my colleague, mentor, and good friend, Dr. Mario Martinez. Dr. Mario is definitely a fan favorite and is so highly requested on here. This is actually his fourth time on Health Mystery Solves. And for those of you who may not know about him, he's a psychoimmunologist, which means that he studies how our mind affects our immune system. He is also the best-selling author of The Mind-Body Code and How the Mind Wounds and Heals. And if you missed some of the other shows that I did with Dr. Mario, please be sure that you go back and listen to episode 7, 51, and 114. His work is truly fascinating. Dr. Mario, I am so excited to have you back. Welcome again. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. It's always so interesting to talk to you, and I learn something new each time. So there are so many facets to optimizing our thyroid health and helping Hashimoto's and autoimmunity in general. A big factor that really contributes to all of this is inflammation. And getting this under wraps is such a key. Now, when it comes to inflammation, though, there are many different ways to view it and find it, but also there's many ways to support it. So I'm really, really excited to dig in. So when you think of inflammation, what would inflammation mean to you? Well, as you said, there there are different markers. There's some that are more predictive than others. But the way to break it down, and this is going to be really the latest uh, that we know now, is to see not just so much whether inflammation is causing Hashimoto or MS or other kinds of autoimmune 
inflammation-related illnesses, but also what's happening with your aging process. And that's where we can really go uh, a little deeper. And the way to look at it very simply, I'm going to take something very, very complex and make it very easy because that's the only way to explain things, is that we have inflammation markers, as you know, that are acute inflammation markers. Uh, for example, the uh, tumor necrosis factor, some of the interleukins, and and also the uh, C-reactive proteins. Those are immune indicators that there's some kind of infection going on, or if it's not an infection, there's some kind of process going on that requires inflammation. Those are the what's called the, the acute effectors. And those are important because those tell you that either there's inflammation caused by some kind of, uh, which inflammation is good when there's an infection or some kind of illness, but it's not good when there's no um, illness, when, it, when it's just systemically coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you measure that, you're going to be measuring some acute reaction to an inflammation. More than that, more important than that, more important than telomeres and other kinds of, of markers, there's something called glycan. And glycan is a sugar protein, it's a, it's a uh, molecule that's in all the cells, all of the cells, especially in the IgG, which is one of the antibodies that fight pathogens. It, it, that's the most that we have of all the five antibodies, that's the IgG. There, that can generalize and tell you how much the other cells are inflamed or not. And what the IgGs do with the glycan, look at it as a balance. Uh, for example, it balances inflammation and anti-inflammation. Inflammation, anti-inflammation. So that's a generic. And that we know now that that is really what ages the, the, um, the cells. And that's where you can come up with biological age as opposed to chronological age. The good news is that you can reverse that. You can reverse biological age. So getting back to Hashimoto and other kinds of autoimmune uh, types of problems is that not only do you want to look at the uh, acute reactions, but you also want to look at how you're being affected in general in the aging of your cells. Because the good news also, again, is that if you can reverse the, the, the glycan imbalance, it also helps with the other indicators. Not only that, but it helps you in looking at your biological age, which is what matters. You could be 50, and if your biological age is 30, that's what you are. That's how your, your cells are aging like a 30-year-old. And that's the way to look at it. And unfortunately, what happens is many illnesses, and 99% and of the illnesses are related, as you know, to some kind of inflammation, uh, is that if we don't look at that, we might be missing a very important point. And this is why sometimes you see people, when before we started a conversation, you were mentioning about uh, sometimes that some people will do all the right things. They eat the right food. They do their yoga. They do namaste and do all these kinds of things. And, and things don't improve. And what happens with that is that we have certain contributors to a particular illness or, or a disorder. And some are necessary, but some are not sufficient. So you could have some indicators, for example, to make things better, lifestyle, definitely exercise, anti-inflammatory foods, and all those kind of things that you know very well because of your work, but that's not enough. There are other things that are just as important, and these are the things that I discovered with centenarians. Um, so that's kind of a, an overall picture of uh, what I'm going to be talking about. I just want to explain a little bit for everyone listening, because not everyone may be familiar with inflammatory markers. So we have the acute markers. And like you mentioned, some of those are things like CRP, which is C-reactive protein or high sensitivity C-reactive protein or certain interleukins. And they're very, very important. 
because they look at the process that's happening, but it's acute. And so oftentimes, because inflammation in the body is more chronic, those acute markers may not be elevated. And so it gives us this false sense that, oh, everything is okay. Meanwhile, there could be this underlying inflammation going on, right? Exactly, yes. And so the glycan marker is able to look at that more overall inflammation. And really, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's looking at like how the body's dealing with it and how the inflammation is affecting it versus having an acute response to something that can go up and down based on if you're sick or if something else is going on. When someone is already doing, you know, eating well and, and good lifestyle, there's still so much more. So let's talk about that. What are some of the other things that could be done to help to support inflammation in other ways? Okay. And and you're right. The people that are already doing those things and uh, you, that's it. That, that's as far as you can go at one level. Then the next level is the, the psychoneuroimmunology, which is the the thinking, the perception, the emotions that affect the regulation of the nervous, immune, and endocrine system. First thing is to be aware that shame causes inflammation. When a person is shamed, especially tumor necrosis factor goes up and interleukin-6 go up, and the stress markers don't go up as much at the uh, stress hormones. So the first study, look how interesting this is. The first study that was done with this they they looked at shame versus guilt. And that's the first time that they actually looked at inflammation because it's always stress. They look at, at cortisol and norepinephrine. So what they found is that the people that, that were experiencing shame didn't have that high level of uh, the stress hormones, but they had high inflammation markers. The guilt didn't have the inflammation. They had more of the uh, of the stress hormones. Part of that is a, a matter that has to do with what I'll be talking also is about the helplessness. With guilt, you're less helpless than shame. Because with guilt... Because mm, you're sort of putting it on yourself, right? That's right. You you did something and, and you're in, you, it's an empowering, I did it, now I can feel guilty about it. But when someone shames you, you don't have any say in that. And you're, you're, you're not the creator of that. Somebody's creating it for you. So there's a helplessness component. So we want to look at helplessness related to inflammation. That's so interesting. Not only that, but if you if someone says, hey, look, that's all we can do for you, that's it, go home and die, immediately your natural killer cells start going down, which are the fighters of uh, in infections, especially cancer and all that. So we're a bioinformational field, not just a biochemical clump of, of cells. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you talk about shame, is it any kind of shame? Are you talking about if someone says, oh, you know, you did a bad job, you didn't get an A on the test versus like, you know, something bigger than that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the the way that to look at it is that we're very resilient. We can handle shame. We can handle, handle uh, guilt and all that kind of adversity. But if you learn, as you know, from biocognition, that one of the three, what I call archetypal wounds early in life, and they are shame, abandonment, or betrayal. If you learn shame as a pattern of interacting with people that are important to you, some things happen. First, you find that in the only way that I can get attention is to relate in a shame consciousness. If the only way I can go to my mother is when she shames me and she says, hey, look, mom, look what I did. Well, you're so dumb. You should, oh, look, I got an A. Well, you're going to get an A next time. That kind of pattern is what creates that intimate language of love related to shame. Without knowing it, you look for environments that continue to shame you or you shame others. And then to answer your question, then if somebody says, 
what's wrong with your hair, then you overreact because you will have a history that you're dumping into the situation. And those people usually have a systemically high level of inflammation and the propensity for autoimmune illnesses. And that's not causing it. It's just one of the indicators that makes it easier for the gene expression to come out and be uh, Hashimoto or, or um, arthritis or anything else. Right. And I remember on one of the previous shows we did, we talked about that big connection with Hashimoto's especially and shame and, you know, partly also with the thyroid being in the fifth chakra and the connection of expression and with shaming, there's a little bit less of that too. Yes. The the way to look at it, to to make it more, uh, there's some techniques, as you know, from the book and the things that you and I have talked about, but but basically to look at, and and you can sit very comfortably, for example, and for a few minutes, just uh, get yourself relaxed and clear your mind and that kind of thing. And then go back and ask yourself, what was my life like? And with my what I call the culture editors, people that are important in your life, parents, friends, teachers, was it was there any kind of a pattern of shaming? Was there any kind of pattern of of abandonment or betrayal? But in this case, let's look at shame. If there's a pattern of shaming, then what is it that I learned from here? And, and developmentally, you go, go back and you say it's not that I'm dumb or it's not that I have the genetic problem. It's just that I learned that shame was a valuable tool to have pro-social behavior, like connect. And this is why sometimes when people have been abused, they go into relationships of abusive uh, partners. And when they're not abused, they don't feel that they're being loved because love means abuse. And that's how the brain will, will, will store that information in codes. It's not a rational thing because normally we say, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to abuse anybody. But the fabric is there. Right. And they end up exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And that, those are the things that we can change. So the first question that I would ask uh, your client is, okay, let's go back and see if there's a shaming component here. Mm -hmm. If there isn't a shaming component, which I bet you there's something there related, then the other thing that you want to look into is, all right, let's see what you know more or less what your, uh, your acute markers are. Let's see if we can get the glycans measured in the IgGs. Uh, and that is a good generalizer of, of overall inflammation. Great. So let's talk about that a little bit. With glycans, is it essentially measuring glycation then? Can you talk about the process of glycation a little bit, just so people can understand what that means? Yes, there, there are uh, two tests that you can do with the, um, with the IgGs, which is immunoglobulin uh, type G, IgG. Those are the most abundant in the body. You can do the N, which is with a glycation with a nitrogen or, or with oxygen. The N is the one that's used the most. So what they do is they they check that it's a very complex process biochemically, and they 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 measure it two or three times before you have all the results to so really get some accurate measures. And what it does is it'll tell you how the balance of the inflammation, anti-inflammation is going in the IgGs. And it'll tell you, for example, since it's been done with hundreds of thousands of people, if you're, let's say, 40, and you have the glycan test, they'll look and they'll look at different markers. What is the, the glycan response or the glycan profile related to heart, related to eyes, related to uh, organs, related to how you process uh, vitamins, that kind of thing? And then correlationally, they say, well, your glycan is functioning at the level of a 20-year-old or at the level of a 50-year-old because it's correlational. You'll know that this is your biological age, and then you can begin to look specifically, well, um, do I have a, uh, a problem with deficiency of vitamin D? 
Uh, do I have a problem with maybe um, much older in the in the uh, cardiovascular, but not so old in the, uh, for example, hypertensive uh, probability, that kind of thing. And then you can do some very specific indications and, and interventions because you have information on how not only do you have a systemic inflammation, but how that inflammation is affecting the different parts of the aging of your cells. So it goes deeper into looking at just the acute components of uh, inflammation markers. So with the glycation process, that's basically a process that damages your cells. So there's something called ages, right? Advanced glycosylated end products, which is if you, um, people may have heard, you know, if you grill your steak and you get like that char grill on it, that can be just more damaging to the cells. So this has to do with the same process. It's this glycation, which is essentially a damaging process that affects your cells. And this test can then look at how much sort of damage there is, which is how they figure out your chronological or biological, excuse me, age. And that's really, really wonderful to know that there's something that can look at this overall inflammation. Because as we were saying, all of those other markers that are acute and it could be deceiving because they could be okay while there is underlying inflammation, or they could be really high, and then you get them down, and then you're like, okay, we're better, but that's because the acute part of that is better. The chronic can still be there. That's right. Let's say you it's like a band-aiding. Let's say you have to take care of it, of course, of the acute uh, uh, markers, but let's say that you get them under control, but you're aging 20 years older than your chronological age. That's not good. Um, so you want to know how you're aging but the good thing, I'll give you an example. When I went to the longevity center, um, I, they asked me, okay, we're going to do this test. And since you uh, are living this kind of life, we're not going to do any intervention. We just want to see how it looks. And and I came out 21 years younger. Wow. <laughs> so they were very surprised. And uh, I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm practicing centenary in consciousness. Um, and, and that is very... Um, enticing and, and a very positive way of look at th- looking at things because you can reverse those things. And they're constantly doing reversals with these kinds of things. But for example, it takes about six weeks to see any kind of change in, in the, in the, the, at the glycan uh, level of the cells. So it's not because it's not an acute process. But once you do, like, let's say you do pre-post, the, two months later, three months, you begin to see the reversals and you begin to notice also the effects of, have, of, of reversing that because in you you literally go back to an age related to how you're aging rather than to your chronological age. So chronological age is not as important as the biological age. So let's talk about some interventions because I know some of the things that you do with Centenarian Consciousness and all of the different tools that you have are super fascinating. So if someone gets this test, right, or if they just know that there is chronic inflammation and they want to work on that, of course, first and foremost, they do some of the biochemical and a lot of people have already started to address that. But then what's next? What are some other things that they can do from the mind-body perspective and the centenary consciousness perspective so that they can continue to reverse it and do much more than what biochemistry can even do. Okay. There are four factors that I found across centenaries. We're just going to talk about one today because they're they're quite complex and, and for time factor. One of them, time, is the most important component. Time. Time is a fascinating concept. And we're going to look at the internal environment, which is what you think, what you feel, and the external environment, how you deal with your world. Not so much we're not going to look at diet or anything else. We're going to look at how you deal with your perceptual mode of the world. Okay, time. If you're not dealing with uh, the special theory of relativity, time is pretty constant. 
you can count on it. But, and you have these circadian markers in the hypothalamus, it'll tell you how much you, time you need before you sleep and all that. But there's a systemic time interpretation, and that's where we want to go. So let's look at the external first. What can you do to elongate time? Well, most of the causes of health are related to the things that we're doing wrong. So for example, you get up in the morning and you the first thing you do is you go to your cell phone, your cortisol level is going to be high for the rest of the day. If you're rushing and you're putting more, more time into smaller space, your cortisol level is going to be high. And, and you can think of that as well as inflammation uh, related. If you are having lunch with your iPad, your cortisol and norepinephrine are going to be higher. If you go to sleep with your iPad, same thing. If you have dinner and lunch with, uh, you go to restaurants and you see it. The other day I was having brunch and, and I saw a couple and they didn't say a word to each other. They, they were each with their, with their cell phones. Why do I say the causes of health? Because if you have, like centenarians, lunch or dinner with a, a partner or a friend and you're actually dealing with each other rather than with the digitals, you're causing all kinds of second immunological values, oxytocin, dopamine, endorphin, GABA, uh, and serotonin. Very interesting. If you don't, not only do you not get those, but you get the stress hormones. So that's the first thing that you want to do. You want to change that. You want to change those things that are very easy to get rid of. Second, you want to look at how you're putting too much space into not enough time. Yeah, please help me with that. All right. <laughs> I'm raising my hand really high as you're talking right now. <laughs> okay. Look at it this way. Time is a duration of space. Space cannot exist without time and time cannot exist without uh, space. So the duration of space is time. So we tend to, number one, micromanage multitask, all of those things are putting too much space into not enough time. And then we go from one task to another, one task to another without really thinking. And one of the mantras that I use when you're doing the re deep relaxation is that I may have mentioned this before and in the other shows, but I'll mention it again. This was attributed to Napoleon, but it wasn't Napoleon. It was Don Quixote, San Sancho, Sancho Panza, Don Quixote, so it was Cervantes. When Sancho Panza was helping Don Quixote in the Man of La Mancha, to, to put on his armor to fight the windmills, <laughs> psychotic, but pretty good. Um, he would say to Sancho Panza, Sancho, dress me slowly, I'm in a hurry. And that is the mantra that you have to use. Sometimes I'm brushing my teeth and I'm, and I'm running. Oh, no, no, Sancho, dress me slowly, I'm in a hurry. And then if it's very difficult to do, you, you're going to waste five minutes, which is okay. You do a little sand walk. A sand walk is, you. let's say you're in the bathroom, you come out of the bathroom, you go to your living room. And you, you walk around the living room the slowest way that you can. And you know you're walking very slowly when you're losing your balance. That will set the timing of your nervous system to slow down. That's a mind-body code to slow down, ascend walk. And then you practice taking more time. So for example, the, the projection of time, you say, uh, this task is going to take me, uh, yeah, it's going to take me two hours. No, it's going to take me three hours. If you finish fast, that's okay, but you, you set up the mind, body into projection because the brain is always projecting. And look at how the, the implications are. The brain is projecting everything. If you do a, uh, a lot of studies with pain, they'll say, for example, okay, one group, 
they tell them, we're going to hook you up to measure actually the pain receptors and all that. And we're going to give you a subjective measure of pain. From, from one, no pain, 10 is the worst you've ever had. And we're going to shock you every 15 seconds. Not too, not too, it's not going to hurt you too much, but it's going to hurt a little. Every 15 seconds for a minute. And they tell another group, we're going to shock you every 15 seconds for five minutes. The brain does a, a time-space projection. And of course, they stop at one minute. And the, the ones that were in five minutes, they didn't know we're going to stop. But then they measure significantly. The ones that were in the five uh, minute have more pain receptor expression. And they have more subjective pain because the brain made a projection into what it can handle and it cannot. So if you could talk, if the brain anthropomorphically would say, yeah, I can handle a minute, but five minutes, no, I don't know. I, I'm going to need more pain receptors for those five minutes. And that's how it works. Wow. That's so interesting. And it's just so interesting what you're saying. It just in the sense, because I'm just thinking about myself personally, I always underestimate time, which I think is probably because I'm why I think I'm notoriously five minutes late to everything. But, you know, if a task takes an hour, I'll think, oh, I could do it in 45 minutes. So then I try to cram it in, which there's obviously not enough time. And of course, I feel rushed and stressed. So I love what you're saying that you literally tell yourself it's going to take two hours. So then you have that time. And then you're also setting yourself up for success and not failure because you know you'll finish. Yeah. And it's, you, you, you created a time-space projection and the brain will go with the time projection that you created. Even if you can do it slower, you're going to do it faster because that is a projection of the main, that the brain made. Neuropsychologically, let's look at aging. We, we, the brain is constantly projecting the future, the future present. It goes to the future present and comes back, future present and comes back. What are the markers? You're 10 years old and you see your mother who is 50 and she looks like she's 80. She's walking, I'm going to exaggerate, with, with a cane, and she's having arthritis. The brain is saying, when I get to 50, that's a marker to how I need to look and be and feel. It's making projections. The good news is that you can change it, but it's making those projections constantly. So one of the exercises, you go back and say, who was my first um, encounter with a marker of illness in my family? And how old was I, more or less? And then go in and begin to feel it. And, and there's some techniques that, as you know, that, that you can do. But basically, you can go back and say, where did I learn these time projections? Where did I learn that, uh, that when you get to this age, this is what needs to happen? And, and one study, a recent study that looked at, at kids who were uh, fifth and sixth grade, and they said, uh, can you tell us how a 50-year-old looks like? And they were walking like an old man or old woman with a cane. Oh, I'm 50 years old. Imagine what that kid is going to do when they get to 50. <laughs> right. So it's projecting out a, a future present. And so you have to be aware of what you're projecting out. Otherwise, your psychoterminology will follow. You say, hey, look, I know that this is going to be two hours, but I'm going to do it in an hour. Well, you put too much space into not enough time. So therefore, in order to be able to do it, you're going to have high level of stress. And then you might have also, if you have a propensity for autoimmune kinds of things, well, you know, you can trigger that. How would you use this in a typical day? You know, say we have, you know, a working mom, she has two kids 
And, you know, she has to get them, get their lunches ready in the morning so that they could take them to school, feed them breakfast, get them dressed, get them out the door to school. And then she has to get herself to work. And then, you know, she has different tasks. And then after that, she comes home and then she has to get dinner and clean up and all of the other tasks. So the, her time, she's definitely pressed for time. Let's put it that way. And, you know, because this is something that my listener experiences all the time. So how can you reframe that or how can, what would you advise for her in terms of structuring her day to make it where she could slow down and how she could think about this type, time and space? Well, first to have a little fun with it and and, and come up with a, a program that that actually is fun. And, and first, usually people who, usually not all the time, but usually people who are rushed don't delegate very well and they don't look at the resources that they have in order to reduce their... Uh, their sense of uh, of obligation, the first thing. The second thing is if you say, all right, uh, I don't have enough time. I'm doing all these things. And 24 hours is too much. And somebody says, if you don't have enough time, I'm going to shoot you. Tell me how you're going to have enough time. And then immediately the brain starts coming up with all kinds of creative things. So for example, you say make lunch at, at in the morning. Well, from let's say seven o'clock to... 7.30 or 7.45, you're making lunch. You're trying to get the kids up. You're trying to, you're putting too much into so little space. So what would happen if you decide then to make lunch the day before? Those kind of logistics kinds of things that make sense, but you first have to be aware that it's, n- that it's not that you don't have enough time. It's just that you're not delegating yourself the time that you need. And I know how it is. I've had kids. I'm not just saying it from some kind of utopian way. But there are many, many ways to do it. When, when my daughter and my, and my son were eight or nine, I was writing a book. I was seeing 40 patients a week, and, and, uh, and I was working out, and, and somehow it worked. But you have to be able to look at, am I micromanaging? Am I multitasking? Am I sleeping an extra hour is going to make me pay for the rest of the, uh, of the week? That kind of thing, that's the first thing that you have to do. And second, what kind of resources do I have? in order to be able to do this a little better. And usually what happens is that if the more you do, the less people around are going to be doing because you're doing it all. The micromanagers and the people that, that do everything are teaching other people to be insensitive to their needs by their, by their actions. Mm, that's an interesting way to think about it. That makes sense. So, so far we've talked about just slowing down, doing the, the Zen walk, and then looking at time and space and making sure you're not putting too much into the space that you have as some of the things that people can do to start to support and reverse that inflammation. What else? Okay. The cultural components that tell you, for example, that idle time is bad. Oh. (laughs) Or that you don't deserve time to rest. I can write a book on that. (laughs) If you're not working, you're lazy. If you're not productive, you're uh, not a good person. If things are not going hard for you, there's something wrong here. I'm going to be doing a workshop that I'm going to be talking about the causes of health and how sustained joy is culturally learned. Joy is learned. Happiness, we're born with it. You, you, you're hungry, you cry. You're fed, you're happy. But joy is a much more important. Uh, you can't, for example, you can't tell what joy is uh, with facial expression. There are about seven or nine facial expressions that are basically more for um, survival, like for example, you across all cultures, you can identify happy, sad, startled, 
surprised, um, a, a, a sense of, um, of fear, anger, all of those are there. But you can't identify joy or love. If you look at someone and say, oh, that person must be in love, that person could be thinking about a chocolate ice cream. You can't identify it because there, there is a, it's a cluster of emotions and cognitions. And that's what we teach. But the culture will tell you, no, 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 look, uh, if you're feeling too good, what's, what's wrong here? How can you break the, how can you, how can you create a problem here? Or if you have sustained joy, more than happiness, then you go, do I deserve this? And, and I saw my dad working all the time and he never got anywhere. Or he worked all the time and he had no time for us. But I'm not going to be like my dad. And you realize that you're just like your dad. Those are the cultural indicators that 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 actually become uh, epigenetically transferred to you. Yeah, I could really relate to that because I definitely come from a long line of, you know, if you're working, it's got to be hard or else you're not working. And, you know, you don't rest like, or if you want to rest, you better finish A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And only then can you rest. But by then, you're not going to have any time. So just keep working on A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's right. And I've, I've worked with a lot of artists and musicians and people that, that are doing professions that don't have to use their body, like uh, uh, digging ditches or a carpenter. Or, uh, and they have this concept that is uh, that is pretty much reinforced implicitly and sometimes explicitly. You're a yoga instructor. Oh, oh come, that's a hobby. You're not. That's a hobby. It's not a job. Uh, are you a, a, a painter? No, that's a hobby. I, I worked with a very outstanding painter who every time that he did well, he would sabotage it. So we went back and we started looking. And he said, my dad would tell me, look look at the, the transfer of uh, generation. My dad would tell me that his grandfather, his dad would tell him that painters was for lazy people, that painters are not, the, the real workers are the carpenters because his dad was a carpenter. So he passed that on. His father passed it on just by telling him the story. But his father never su succeeded very well, nor did my uh, patient because of that. that. That admonition that what you're doing is not serious enough for you to make money. Right. It's amazing how, you know, just a comment or like you said, a story and then the thought, like the the story you associate then with that comment, right? And it, it just affects so much. So if someone does have some of these connotations, right, where they have been told. And, and by the way, I also wanted to mention, you know, when you say when you're told, it's not even where someone tells you that constantly, right? Sometimes it could even be just the mannerisms of your parents or your caretakers, right? So it's not like they have to tell you every day, like, you're lazy, you're lazy. They may not actually even say you're lazy, but it could even be something like, oh, like, don't you think you should be doing this, you know? And then, like, it kind of makes you be like, oh, wait, I guess so. All right, let me go hurry and do that, right? Yeah, it's implicit. It's a very, uh, like, aging. Uh, there's uh, something I call vicarious aging. And that's aging by observation. Um, you you see other people and you say, I'm 40 now. Look at the way the people are 40, how they dress. And, and then the culture will admonish you and you say, look, I'm 40. I think I want to go back to school. No, no, no. You got to save for your for your retirement because, you know, who's going to pay for the nursing home? <laughs> you know? mm, like, right. So you say, okay, all right. And the outliers, every centenarian that I have interviewed or worked with, they're all outliers. They create their own markers. They create as they go along because they don't have... By being an outlier, by definition, you don't have a model. There's no mold there. You have to create your own as you're going along. Yeah. So if someone notices that they have some of these things, so they've been sort of quote unquote taught that or have seen that, what are some, how, how do they create their own? Like, how do they get out of this? Well, since you learned something from someone, 
you can learn something different from someone else. So one of the things that you do with the technique that you know that I use with what I call the theater of change, you get the person relaxed and in a contemplative state. Then you, in that, that what I call the theater of change, you go back and you ask yourself, okay, this is what I learned from my mother or whoever who told me that uh, idle time is something wrong. Now, who in my family was able to actually have a good life and they were more um, comfortable with themselves and they didn't work that hard and they did better than my parents? You look for a model there. If you don't find a model, then you ask yourself, how can I learn to be my own model? And then you start acting as if you are your own model and you start changing the neural maps. So I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say that you're unrelated, but you can see how, how they have a consistency. You uh, Affirmations on disembodied affirmations don't work. You could say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good, that's not going to work because the brain doesn't work that way. The brain goes with evidence. So if you get into that state of contemplativeness and you say, I'm a good person, all right, evidence. When was I a good person? Oh, two weeks ago, I did something that said, okay, embody that. How does that feel in your body? How do you feel in your mind? Okay, good. Another one, you do three or four, and then you have very weak neural maps. And what you do to strengthen them, you say, I make a commitment that for the next week, I'm going to do things that give me evidence that I'm a good person. By the end of the week, the affirmation worked. Yeah, that's, I think, huge what you said right there, because the embodiment piece, and that's something I talk about a lot on the show and with my clients and students, but I think it's something that we kind of need to say over and over and over again, because not everyone looks at it or understands it in the same way. Absolutely. It's not just about saying I'm good or I'm smart or I'm healthy or my thyroid numbers are good or whatever it may be. It's finding evidence of when that happened. And I'll say this a lot to clients if you know they have a flare-up. So with Hashimoto's, it's really common that everything could be good and your levels are good and your antibodies are stable. And then something happens, right? That could be stress. That could be you know, some kind of an infection, like we've seen this a lot with COVID, but it really could be anything and something triggers it. And then there's a flare up. And so the numbers go off the chart with thyroid labs, um, antibodies are up again, and usually people don't feel well. And so the first thing that people usually say is, oh my gosh, I'm back there again, right? Like it's happening and everything, I'm going to have to go through this whole thing. again. I always say, no, wait, hold on. Like you've been through it. We've corrected it. This is just a flare up. It happens. You can get back there, right? So it's like, well, let's remember how you felt two weeks ago and how you felt two weeks before that, right? Feel that. And then as they start to feel better over the next week or so, as we do some other interventions and it's like, okay, now see, you weren't feeling well, but now you're doing better. So like, let's feel that, see that, feel that, and then collect that as evidence. That's excellent. That That's exactly right. And remembering that if you say, oh, I'm back, helplessness comes in, which psychoimmunologically, you have all kinds of blockers that don't let you get back in. So you say, okay, you, you can't do Pollyanna. You can say, oh, how wonderful, because this is happening. You go, all right, this is what's happening. I can either go into helplessness and say, oh, my God, or I can say what you, what you just said, go back and see what I do. This is a process. This, an illness is a process. It's not a sentence. And it goes up and down. It goes, okay, so what do I do now? But without forgetting your joy while you're doing it. Because when people are trying to get back there, they're doing it seriously and they're and they're afraid. No, no, you 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 allow your joy to come in while you're repairing. And that's psychoimmunologically also very powerful in helping you get back faster. 
Yeah. Do you have any tips on how to allow joy in when you're repairing? Just because oftentimes as someone is repairing, whether it's something from a health perspective or stress, it's usually scary and they're not feeling well often or something else is happening. So it's sometimes hard, oftentimes hard to feel joy because they are scared and it is hard. Well, two, two things. First, you want to learn the joy under good conditions to make to learn it well and then apply it under bad conditions. So, for example, someone comes to you and they say, look, I'm feeling really tired and my markers are way up there and, and I'm feeling very helpless and, 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 and do all the kind of things. Okay, let's first, number one, let's go to the mind-body code so you can assess it at the mind-body code. And what you do is you get them relaxed and you say, okay, now I want you to go into your tiredness. Where do you feel your tiredness? And they don't have to answer that. They just feel it. Be into that tiredness. Where do you feel your brain fog? Okay, go into that. And that is the bioinformational feel that you're feeling right now. Rather than fighting it, pay attention to it as if you're watching a film. And you watch this and you go to the tiredness and then you go to the brain fog. Tiredness, brain fog. Then go to a part of your body where things are really feeling good. And you always find something feeling good, no matter, even if you have chronic pain. Go there and go back and forth and back and forth. That begins to create neuromap battles. And what it does then is that the neuromaps of healing, you have 150,000 years of information that says these are the causes of health. That's going to come out and it's going to help you epigenetically and then every other way so you go back and forth but by doing that the incidental learning that you're actually doing is so you're reducing the stress of the moment the acuteness of the moment you're going into it rather than fighting and trying to get rid of it no you don't want to get rid of it you want to go into it and find out where it's being expressed so if i was working with in private practice i was working with uh, someone who was depressed oh, i'm really depressed really okay let's start to where are you depressed i'm depressed where? I don't know. Then how do you know you're depressed? And then you keep going you get, till you embody it. And I'm feeling really, really weak. Where? Everywhere. No, not everywhere. And, and you, you find specificity, and the specificity reduces the intensity of your reaction to the situation. Mm, gotcha. Now, can someone use this with pain? Like, say someone has a headache. Could you say, like, okay, well, where's your headache? Is it on the right side or the left side or the front or the back? And then they can like go to that area where they feel it in their head and then go to another area of their body where there's no pain, where they feel good, like their hand, let's say, and kind of go back and forth that way. Could that work? Yeah. And, and there's a specific technique that I that I can um, I can talk about. For example, let's say you have a, the, the right side of your head is, is hurting. Okay. So first you take a deep breath to, to not respond to the stress the way, so you stop and a, and a headache is, is a headache. I mean, just, so you go there and you feel it and you give it a semantic differential space. And what that means is that how, how large is it? Is it uh, 30 centimeters? Is it four inches? What color is it? Is it red? Is it blue? Um, is it throbbing? In the subjective units of pain, is it a one or is it an eight? So you're creating a semantic space for that headache, which has a neuromap, right? So then you go to a part of your body on the left side of the brain that doesn't hurt, and you, what semantic space can you create for that? Well, that part face is not throbbing. It, I would say blue rather than red. I would say pleasant rather than unpleasant. 
I would say it's a much larger area than the 30 centimeters or whatever. And then you go back and forth and back and forth. And you begin, you begin to create confusion between the uh, horizons of the neuromaps. And it begins to reduce the level of the pain. I've done that with people who had chronic pain, who neurosurgeons would refer them because they couldn't do any more analgesics and it would kill them. Uh, and they, have, they had implants and some of them were able to get rid of the implants and the, uh, the TENS unit and things like that by doing those techniques. But here's the important thing. I had uh, two sisters, which is really a great study. Um, they both had the genetic predisposition, so that they both had the, the, the implants and terrible pain. One, the husband wanted her to get better. The other one wanted to keep victimhood. Guess which one got better? <laughs> so you have to look at your co-authors when you're trying to get better. That's another component that I wanted to bring up. Not that they're bad. It's just that some people, if they're caretakers, they can't really respond to you unless there's something wrong with you. And you have to change the way you respond to that caretaker. Otherwise, the caretaker will always keep you sick. Right, because they feel like they won't have a job if you're better, right? Yeah, that's right. Or, or you, or if you get better, you're going to leave me, that kind of thing. And so is it just a matter of realizing that that's your co-author and you need to change? Realizing that and then changing. You can't change your, your co-author, but you can change the way you respond to your co-author. I had one patient who had fibromyalgia, and the husband was one of these people that... And, and when you think about it in a, in a kind of a logical classical therapeutic way, you would say, this woman is making this guy's life miserable because he wants to travel and she has fibromyalgia and she can't travel. Well, they're co-authors. What happened is that as she started getting better, he could no longer use her as an excuse to not travel because he didn't know how to deal with his own joy. So therefore, he started sabotaging her as she got better. And intellectually, he would say, no, I really want to help her. But he would do all the things because if she stopped in the way that she started responding to him differently, to, to your question, it was, uh, he would say, uh, you want to go to the, the shopping center? No, I have fibromyalgia. It's really flaring up. And so, no, don't use the excuse. If you don't want to go, say, I don't want to go. So she would. And he would say, is it fibromyalgia? No, I just don't want to go. He didn't have any software for that. He didn't know how to deal with that. So after a while, then he starts creating problems for her to go back to the fibromyalgia. She didn't get any better. She was getting better, but that would have been going into a level of joy that she couldn't allow herself or her husband could allow himself to do. So co-authors are very important in, in the healing process. So with Back to Joy, one of the things that you said earlier was that you want to experience joy in the good times. And the more you do that, the more you can then take some of the joy into the bad times. But if you're not able to experience joy in the good times, it'll be kind of hard, right, to bring it into the sort of quote unquote bad times. Yes, yes. And and I'll talk about joy a little bit because I, I, you know, if you say joy, what does that mean? I want to operationalize it more. As you know, I don't work with behavior change. I, I work with recontextualizing the terrains that support the behavior. So it's very, very different than, than conventional psychology. So what is the terrain of joy? The terrain, the main terrain of joy is serenity. So if you're in the middle of a storm and you begin to do these methods of you go into serenity, when you go into serenity, you begin to feel a, a very slight sense of wellness, a very slight sense of belongingness, a very slight sense of worthiness, hope, love, connection with the world, all those things together are what we call joy. Yeah. And that's very hard for a lot of people to experience. 
Yeah. Yeah, because you, you have to learn it. The whole idea is that you have to say to yourself, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Let me learn it. It's like I want to learn how to ride a bike. You don't beat yourself up if you don't have the balance because you haven't done it. So this is and, and this you, this is where centenarians get excited about their curiosity. Oh, I'm going to learn German. A 102-year-old, when I ask him, what are you going to do for the next six months? The next six months, the next three years, I'm going to learn German to be proficient. They get excited about the learning. You want to get exciting about learning because another one of the causes of health is curiosity. If you don't have curiosity, look what it does with time, for example, curiosity. Gerontologists will tell you, you know, as you grow older, time seems to pass faster. And it's got to be the brain. It's got to be this. It's got to be that. You don't have enough time to live. Nothing to do with it is the level of curiosity. Really? Yes. The first 30 years, you're the most curious. Your first love, your first breakup, your first marriage, your first this, your first that. After that, there are very few thir- first if you're not curious. Oh. If you maintain your curiosity, you will be like centenarians. When you ask a centenarian, is time running too fast for you? No, it's running the same way that it's ran all the time. I have all the time in the world. Because they're curious. So curiosity is the indicator. And neuropsychologically, the reason is that when you pay attention to something that's exciting to you, your brain puts more time space into it. So when you think about it, it makes you think that you have all the time in the world. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. I always thought that time seems to run faster as you're older because you've just been alive more. So you have more reference for that. You know, so if you're 10 years old, you only know what 10 years feels like. And so the reference is 10 years. Once you're 30, now you know what 30 feels like. So you're looking at it from a different reference. But that's so interesting what you said about curiosity, because you are right after 30, you know, you've had a lot of firsts already. And then it does sort of feel like, okay, but I've done that, experienced that, seen that. What's, what else is there? That's it. Interesting and scary at the same time. And, and it works. I mean, it's it's been shown with experiments of what happens when you're curious, when you're not curious. So, for example, if you go to it, and this has been tested, uh, if uh, if you go to the post office, people don't go to the post office anymore. But if you, let's say, the post office and you're waiting in line, it's not a very exciting time. So, what you're doing is you're elongating time. Right. So uh, you go there and you, oh, God, this is going to gonna be an hour. When they ask you how long it took, you always report less time than it actually was. Paradoxical. If you're doing something exciting, it feels like time flies. When they ask you how long it took, you elongate. Uh-huh. You think that it took longer than it did. The reason is that the brain pays attention to things that are curious. And by paying attention, they elongate the time. So there, when you think about it, it felt longer than it did. And what do we do with the future? We project the future from our past, right? So if you have a past that has elongated time, you're going to elongate time in the future. And you're going to think you have all the time in the world. So it's very paradoxical, but but it's been studied extensively. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. It kind of reminds me of when you think about intuition and flow state and when you talk about curiosity, right? Because if we think about following intuition and that's something that, you know, I know a lot of people are trying to harness, but it's hard because there's all these other things that can get in the way. But if we follow intuition, in a sense, it's very similar to being curious, isn't it? Because we're like, oh, what is my body telling me? Oh, I think it's telling me I should go left, right? But it's sort of like, I wonder what's over there in the left, right? So if you're looking at it that way, I could see how that can 
also extend time because you're actually following what it is that your body wants and possibly and probably needs versus what you think you have to or should be doing. Yes. And, and the curiosity is a component there because intuition is internal curiosity. You have to, by to be intuitive, you have to look inward and you have to be curious and, and creative and all that. But to look at it, let's say, for example, I have this intuition that uh, I shouldn't be doing this, this job. And you find out that you were wrong. Okay, fine. Instead of, oh my God, there's no intuition. How can I refine this intuition? Not so I get 100%, but so I can get a sense between rational thinking, which would be the serotonin of the brain, and gut feeling, which is a serotonin of the intestines, which makes more serotonin than the brain. Yeah. And then on the other side of that too, is how do you even find out that it was wrong, right? You really won't know. So maybe it wasn't wrong and maybe your intuition was right the whole time. Yeah. Right. You don't know what could have been. That's a good point. What I learned from centenarians is that I had, I changed when I work with organizations, I changed the word mistake. Mistake is an approximation to a goal that didn't work as well as expected. That's a mistake. And then what happens? Instead of beating yourself up, I made a mistake. The approximation just went so far. But when it went before that point, it was going well. When did it break? That's a mistake. Mm, I like that. <laughs> That's really empowering. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's very empowering. I just think it's so cool that all of these things play such a role. And I know that obviously we talk about the effects of stress. We know in our culture, in our society now that stress does affect us in so many different ways, but I don't think people think about it in some of these details that you're describing. So the fact that some of these action steps can be done to actually help to reverse not just acute inflammation, but the more chronic and systemic inflammation, which actually then leads to flare-ups and autoimmunity and aging and all of the different elements that we can have. That's really, really amazing. And how this could be as much as 50% in addition to, you know, all of the lifestyle and the food choices, just, I, I just think that's really cool. Yeah, because you're, you're right. What what happens is that we we, we get tools if I eat this or if I do that, if I take this supplement, and what I did with centenarians, everybody was doing that. Everybody was looking at diets. I asked myself as a neuropsychologist, what goggles do they use to look at the world and interpret the world in factors? And I found those four factors. That's what matters most because it doesn't matter if you're eating the right food or not. If you're what's called the default mode, if you have a default mode of anticipation, fear, confrontational, anger, that's what you're going to neuropsychologically and psychoneurologically respond to independent of the food and the yoga and all these other things that you do. So you have to look at the goggles that you're putting on to look at the world. And, and time is one of those uh, factors. And that's why, for example, some people will, will meditate and go deep into meditation. They feel really good at 10 minutes later, they're tense again because they didn't go to the full mode. They just got themselves into a band-aid of relaxation rather than perception of the world. Right, right. Yeah, well, time is definitely a big one. And I think for everyone listening, it's something that I would say almost everyone struggles with, like time frustration, time struggle, time stress. I mean, that's just such a big thing. And so I think it's just so helpful to learn about all of these modalities and the techniques that you shared here about how we can start to reframe it, start to just think of it differently, start to even just recognize it, if nothing else, and how much this 
has to do with chronic inflammation. And of course, I'd love to get you back on the show so we could talk about the other three things that you have found with centenarians in addition to time. Next time we'll do the other, one of the other factors that I like so much is self-valuation. That's an extremely important one. We'll do that next time. That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Dr. Mario, thank you again so much for all of this valuable information. And I will post all of your links to how people could connect with you and contact you, as well as more information about that glycan test that you mentioned. I will post all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As you just heard, chronic inflammation plays a huge role in Hashimoto's and our overall health. And it's not something that we can always measure with just acute inflammatory markers like CRP. So it's not always apparent, even though it's a huge issue. For Amanda, I first started to support her thyroid type as her thyroid hormones were not in the optimal range. And then we started to work on calming the inflammation and balancing her immune system to lower the attack on her thyroid. I looked at various triggers like infections and parasites, which were an issue for her. And we started to address the stress factor, which included really looking at her life and seeing how she could find more joy. This included how she can reframe and rephrase things and how she can look at the world with better glasses, so to speak. She had quite a few limiting beliefs, some about time, a lot actually about time, but also many more about not being deserving of having perfect health and that perfect health is not even attainable and also things like not being good enough. These limiting beliefs and upper limits are so, so common for those with Hashimoto's. And so we started to address that with various coaching techniques, as well as some hypnosis and regression work. She was surprised about all of the avenues we took. She honestly just expected me to give her more and more supplements. And yes, we did supplements, but that was only part of it. And for her specifically, it was just as big of a part as the mind, body, and the belief piece. Three months into the process, she felt a huge shift. Everything just seemed easier. Things were flowing more, and she didn't feel like she was struggling every minute of the day. Not only did her energy and brain fog get better, she had less pain. The other cool thing is that she felt so much better that she was able to take on another job in a different industry, which actually brought her way more joy than her previous job. So working on her Hashimoto's ended up bringing her so much more than just better health. She actually started to enjoy her life. And of course, it's like a vicious cycle, but this way, kind of going into the positive and spiraling to the positive. One positive brings on another and so on and so on. So she was so excited. And of course, so was I. If Amanda sounds like someone you know, would you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. And remember, no matter what the symptoms are that you're dealing with, please remember the answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.